Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. I am your editor, producer, host, and all-around person who does... Thank you for listening. As always, the show is brought to you by bunnieslippers.com. I just have to say, the Highland Cow Slippers continue to keep my feet warm as I record. Oh man. Woo, baby. And hopefully in October, I'll be throwing a pair out into... Uh, some panel group at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Hopefully that's going on in October. I hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone's staying safe. I hope everyone's staying clean. And when you're out and about, staying sterile. I don't know. Hey, just keep your brain going. Listen to some Oz. <coughs> I, I wonder what happens if, if uh, you sync uh, this podcast up with... Uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, or who? Maybe if you uh, play the podcast while you watch Live at Pompeii. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to laugh at my own jokes, but there's no one else here too. So yeah, um, hope you checked out and enjoyed David Heath talking about Wizard of Oz and pop culture. And coming up soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about The Wizard of Oz. I should have done a special where I put them together, but I didn't think about that. Oh, man. I fell down some stairs the other day. I hurt my ankle and my wrist. It's... I'm, I'm finally getting this all out at the last minute, but yeah. So, hey, I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy this week. This is the final week of Oz. This is the fifth story of... Dorothy Gale? Yeah, Dorothy Gale. Okay, so... But there's a ton more Oz books out there. There is seriously an insane amount of Oz books. They kept writing them. Not just... Uh, like, um, kind of like the Oz... Kind of like the Oz Society approves fan fiction kind of stuff. It's a ton of stuff out there. I, I, I recommend checking out the artwork at least. It's, it's very cool, interesting stuff. And... Yeah, Wizard of Oz, it's fun, it's, I enjoy it, Hope, oh, hopefully you're enjoying it, and you've made it through the five books, I can't remember what next month is, but it's going to be fun, and also don't forget to check out People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, coming out on Tuesday of this week, and we're going to be talking about a certain region of France that Clark Ashton Smith wrote about, and what else can we think, yeah, no, remember to subscribe, listen, uh, tell your friends about it, and that's the best way you can help the show is rate and review on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else that podcasts are found because that's what's helpful. Here we go. Chapter 4. How the Gnome King Planned Revenge The reason most people are bad is because they do not try to be good. Now, the Gnome King had never tried to be good, so he was very bad indeed. Having decided to conquer the land of Oz and to destroy the Emerald City and enslave all its people, King Roquat the Red kept planning ways to do this dreadful thing, and the more he planned, the more he believed he would be able to accomplish it. About the time Dorothy went to Ozma, the Gnome King called his chief steward to him and said, "'Calico, I think I shall make you the general of my armies.' "'I think you won't.' replied Calico positively. Why not? inquired the king, reaching for his scepter with the big sapphire. 
"'Because I am your chief steward and know nothing of warfare,' said Kaliko, preparing to dodge if anything were thrown at him. "'I manage all the affairs of your kingdom better than you could yourself, and you'll never find another steward as good as I am. But there are hundreds of gnomes better fitted to command your army, and your generals get thrown away so often that I have no desire to be one of them.' "'Ah, there is some truth in your remarks, Kaliko.' remarked the king, deciding not to throw the scepter. Summon my army to assemble in the great cavern. Kaliko bowed and retired, and in a few minutes returned to say that the army was assembled. So the king went out upon a balcony that overlooked the great cavern, where fifty thousand gnomes, all armed with swords and pikes, stood marshaled in military array. When they were not required as soldiers, all these gnomes were metal-workers and miners, and they had hammered so much at the forges and dug so hard with pick and shovel that they had acquired great muscular strength. They were strangely formed creatures, rather round and not very tall. Their toes were curly and their ears broad and flat. In time of war every gnome left his forge or mine and became part of the great army of King Roquat. The soldiers wore rock-colored uniforms and were excellently drilled. The king looked upon this tremendous army, which stood silently arrayed before him, and a cruel smile curled the corners of his mouth, for he saw that his legions were very powerful. Then he addressed them from the balcony, saying, I have thrown away General Blug because he did not please me. So I want another general to command this army. Who is next in command? I am, replied Colonel Crinkle, a dapper-looking gnome, as he stepped forward to salute his monarch. The king looked at him carefully and said, I want you to march this army through an underground tunnel, which I am going to bore, to the Emerald City of Oz. When you get there, I want you to conquer the Oz people, destroy them in their city, and bring all their gold and silver and precious stones back to my cavern. Also, you are to recapture my magic belt and return it to me. Will you do this, General Crinkle? No, Your Majesty, replied the gnome, for it can't be done. Oh, indeed, exclaimed the king. Then he turned to his servants and said, Please take General Crinkle to the torture chamber. There you will kindly slice him into thin slices. Afterward you may feed him to the seven-headed dogs. Anything to oblige your majesty, replied the servants politely, and led the condemned man away. When they had gone, the king addressed the army again. Listen, said he. The general who is to command my armies must promise to carry out my orders. If he fails, he will share the fate of poor Crinkle. Now then, who will volunteer to lead my hosts to the Emerald City? For a time no one moved, and all were silent. Then an old gnome with white whiskers so long that they were tied around his waist to prevent their tripping him up, stepped out of the ranks and saluted the king. I'd like to ask a few questions, your majesty, he said. "'Go ahead,' replied the king. "'These Oz people are quite good, are they not?' "'As good as apple pie,' said the king. 
"'And they are happy, I suppose,' continued the old gnome. "'Happy as the day is long,' said the king. "'And contented and prosperous?' inquired the gnome. "'Very much so,' said the king. "'Well, your majesty,' remarked he of the white whiskers, "'I think I should like to undertake the job, so I'll be your general.' I hate good people. I detest happy people. I'm opposed to anyone who is contented and prosperous. That is why I am so fond of your majesty. Make me your general, and I'll promise to conquer and destroy the Oz people. If I fail, I'm ready to be sliced thin and fed to the seven-headed dogs. Very good, very good indeed. That's the way to talk cried Roquat the Red, who was greatly pleased. What is your name, General? I'm called Guff, Your Majesty. Well, Guff, come with me to my private cave, and we'll talk it over. Then he turned to the army. Gnomes and soldiers, said he, you are to obey the commands of General Guff until he becomes dog-feed. Any man who fails to obey his new general will be promptly thrown away. You are now dismissed. Guff went to the king's private cave and sat down upon an amethyst chair and put his feet on the arm of the king's ruby throne. Then he lighted his pipe and threw the live coal he had taken from his pocket upon the king's left foot and puffed the smoke into the king's eyes and made himself comfortable. For he was a wise old gnome and he knew that the best way to get along with Roquat the Red was to show that he was not afraid of him. "'I'm ready for the talk, Your Majesty,' he said. The king coughed and looked at his new general fiercely. "'Do you not tremble to take such liberties with your monarch?' he asked. "'Oh, no,' replied Guff calmly, and he blew a wreath of smoke that curled around the king's nose and made him sneeze. "'You want to conquer the Emerald City, and I'm the only gnome in all your dominions who can conquer it.' So you will be very careful not to hurt me until I have carried out your wishes. After that... Well, what then? inquired the king. Then you will be so gratified that you won't care to hurt me, replied the general. That is a very good argument, said Broquat. But suppose you fail. Then it's the slicing machine. I agree to that, announced Guff. But if you do as I tell you, there will be no failure. The trouble with you, Roquat, is that you don't think carefully enough. I do. You would go ahead and march through your tunnel into Oz and get defeated and driven back. I won't. And the reason I won't is because when I march, I'll have all my plans made and a host of allies to assist my gnomes. What do you mean by that? asked the king. I'll explain, King Roquat. You're going to attack a fairy country, and a mighty fairy country, too. They haven't much of an army in Oz, but the princess who rules them has a fairy wand, and the little girl Dorothy has your magic belt, and at the north of the Emerald City lives a clever sorceress called Glinda the Good, who commands the spirits of the air. Also I have heard that there is a wonderful wizard in Ozma's palace, who is so skillful that people used to pay him money in America to see him perform. So, you see, it will be no easy thing to overcome all this magic. 
We have fifty thousand soldiers, cried the king proudly. Yes, but they are gnomes, remarked Guff, taking a silk handkerchief from the king's pocket and wiping his own pointed shoes with it. Gnomes are immortals, but they are not strong on magic. When you lost your famous belt, the greater part of your own power was gone from you. Against Ozma, you and your gnomes would have no show at all. Roquat's eyes flashed angrily. Then away with you to the slicing machine, he cried. Not yet, said the general, filling his pipe from the king's private tobacco pouch. What do you propose to do? asked the monarch. I propose to obtain the power we need, answered Guff. There are a good many evil creatures who have magic powers, sufficient to destroy and conquer the land of Oz. We will get them on our side, band them all together, and then take Ozma and her people by surprise. It's all very simple and easy when you know how. Alone we should be helpless to injure the ruler of Oz, but with the aid of the evil powers we can summon, we shall easily succeed. King Roquat was delighted with this idea, for he realized how clever it was. Surely, Guff, you are the greatest general I have ever had, he exclaimed, his eyes sparkling with joy. You must go at once and make all arrangements with the evil powers to assist us, and meantime I'll begin to dig the tunnel. I thought you'd agree with me, Roquat, replied the new general. I'll start this very afternoon to visit the chief of the Whimsies. End of chapter 4 Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying Emerald City of Oz. And just a reminder... It really helps if you, you don't have to donate money, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is go to wherever you find this show and just review it. Give it a couple of stars, give it, well, more than a couple of stars, I mean, at least three or four. And, you know, always say something, not always, geez, I don't want to tell you what to do, but say something nice. I don't know. There's people who don't like the first three minutes and are, like, really mean about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's not... Anyway, just, just, it helps the show, and it gets me money for advertising, so I don't have to do this in the middle of the show. All right, thank you very much, and hope you enjoy the next 15 to 20 minutes left of the show. All right, thank you. Have a good one. How Dorothy Became a Princess When the people of the Emerald City heard that Dorothy had returned to them, everyone was eager to see her for the little girl was a general favorite in the land of Oz. From time to time, some of the folk from the great outside world had found their way into this fairyland, but all except one had been the companions of Dorothy, and had turned out to be very agreeable people. The exception I speak of was the wonderful Wizard of Oz, a sleight-of-hand performer from Omaha, who went up in a balloon and was carried by a current of air to the Emerald City. His queer and puzzling tricks made the people of Oz believe him to be a great wizard for a time, and he ruled over them until Dorothy arrived on her first visit and showed the wizard to be a mere humbug. He was a gentle, kind-hearted little man, and Dorothy grew to like him afterward, when, after an absence, 
the wizard returned to the land of Oz. Ozma received him graciously and gave him a home in a part of the palace. In addition to the wizard, two other personages from the outside world had been allowed to make their home in the Emerald City. The first was a quaint shaggy man, whom Ozma had made the governor of the royal storehouses, and the second a yellow hen named Bellina, who had a fine house in the gardens back of the palace, where she looked after a large family. Both of these had been old comrades of Dorothy, so you see the little girl was quite an important personage in Oz, and the people thought she had brought them good luck and loved her next best to Ozma. During her several visits this little girl had been the means of destroying two wicked witches who oppressed the people, and she had discovered a live scarecrow who was now one of the most popular personages in all the fairy country. With the Scarecrow's help, she had rescued Nick Chopper, a tin woodman, who had rusted in a lonely forest, and the tin man was now the emperor of the country of the Winkies, and much beloved because of his kind heart. No wonder the people thought Dorothy had brought them good luck. Yet, strange as it may seem, she had accomplished all these wonders not because she was a fairy, or had any magical powers whatever, but because she was a simple, sweet, and true little girl who was honest to herself and to all whom she met. In this world in which we live, simplicity and kindness are the only magic wands that work wonders, and in the land of Oz Dorothy found these same qualities had won for her the love and admiration of the people. Indeed, the little girl had made many warm friends in the fairy country, and the only real grief the Ozites had ever experienced was when Dorothy left them and returned to her Kansas home. Now she received a joyful welcome, although no one except Ozma knew at first that she had finally come to stay for good and all. That evening Dorothy had many callers, and among them were such important people as Tick-Tock, a machine man who thought and spoke and moved by clockwork, her old companion the genial Shaggy Man, Jack Pumpkinhead, whose body was brushwood and whose head was a ripe pumpkin with a face carved upon it, the Cowardly Lion and the Hungry Tiger, two great beasts from the forest, who served Princess Ozma, and Professor H. M. Wogglebug, T.E. This Wogglebug was a remarkable creature. He had once been a tiny little bug, crawling around in a schoolroom, but he was discovered and highly magnified, so that he could be seen more plainly, and while in this magnified condition he had escaped. He had always remained big, and he dressed like a dandy, and was so full of knowledge and information, which are distinct acquirements, that he had been made a professor and the head of the royal college. Dorothy had a nice visit with these old friends, and also talked a long time with the wizard, who was little and old and withered and dried up, but as merry and active as a child. Afterward, she went to see Bellina's fast-growing family of chicks. Toto, Dorothy's little black dog, also met with a cordial reception. Toto was an especial friend of the Shaggy Man, and he knew everyone else. 
being the only dog in the land of Oz, he was highly respected by the people, who believed animals entitled to every consideration if they behaved themselves properly. Dorothy had four lovely rooms in the palace, which were always reserved for her use and were called Dorothy's rooms. These consisted of a beautiful sitting room, a dressing room, a dainty bedchamber, and a big marble bathroom. And in these rooms were everything that heart could desire, placed there with loving thoughtfulness by Ozma for her little friend's use. The royal dressmakers had the little girl's measure, so they kept the closets in her dressing room filled with lovely dresses of every description and suitable for every occasion. No wonder Dorothy had refrained from bringing with her her old calico and gingham dresses. Here, everything that was dear to a little girl's heart was supplied in profusion, and nothing so rich and beautiful could ever have been found in the biggest department stores in America. Of course, Dorothy enjoyed all these luxuries, and the only reason she had heretofore preferred to live in Kansas was because her uncle and aunt loved her and needed her with them. Now, however, all was to be changed, and Dorothy was really more delighted to know that her dear relatives were to share in her good fortune and enjoy the delights of the land of Oz than she was to possess such luxury for herself. Next morning, at Ozma's request, Dorothy dressed herself in a pretty sky-blue gown of rich silk trimmed with real pearls. The buckles of her shoes were set with pearls, too, and more of these priceless gems were on a lovely coronet which she wore upon her forehead. For, said her friend Ozma, from this time forth, my dear, you must assume your rightful rank as a princess of Oz, and being my chosen companion, you must dress in a way befitting the dignity of your position. Dorothy agreed to this, although she knew that neither gowns nor jewels could make her anything else than the simple, unaffected little girl she had always been. As soon as they had breakfasted, the girls eating together in Ozma's pretty boudoir, the ruler of Oz said, Now, dear friend, we will use the magic belt to transport your uncle and aunt from Kansas to the Emerald City. But I think it would be fitting, in receiving such distinguished guests, for us to sit in my throne room. Oh, they're not very distinguished, Ozma, said Dorothy. They're just plain people, like me. Being your friends and relatives, Princess Dorothy, they are certainly distinguished, replied the ruler with a smile. They, they won't hardly know what to make of all your splendid furniture and things, protested Dorothy gravely. It may scare em to see your grand throne room, and perhaps we'd better go into the back yard, Ozma, where the cabbages grow and the chickens are playing. Then it would seem more natural to Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. No, they shall first see me in my throne room, replied Ozma decidedly, and when she spoke in that tone, Dorothy knew it was not wise to oppose her, for Ozma was accustomed to having her own way. So together they went to the throne room, an immense domed chamber in the center of the palace. Here stood the royal throne, made of solid gold, and encrusted with enough precious stones to stock a dozen jewelry stores in our country. 
Ozma, who was wearing the magic belt, seated herself in her throne, and Dorothy sat at her feet. In the room were assembled many ladies and gentlemen of the court, clothed in rich apparel and wearing fine jewelry. Two immense animals squatted, one on each side of the throne, the cowardly lion and the hungry tiger. In a balcony high up in the dome an orchestra played sweet music, and beneath the dome two electric fountains sent sprays of colored perfumed water shooting up nearly as high as the arched ceiling. "'Are you ready, Dorothy?' asked the ruler. "'I am,' replied Dorothy, "'but I don't know whether Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are ready.' "'That won't matter,' declared Ozma. "'The old life can have very little interest to them, "'and the sooner they begin the new life here, the happier they will be. "'Here they come, my dear.' As she spoke, there before the throne appeared Uncle Henry and Aunt Em, who for a moment stood motionless, glaring with white and startled faces at the scene that confronted them. If the ladies and gentlemen present had not been so polite, I am sure they would have laughed at the two strangers. Aunt Em had her calico dress skirt tucked up, and she wore a faded blue checked apron. Her hair was rather straggly, and she had on a pair of Uncle Henry's old slippers. In one hand she held a dish-towel, and in the other a cracked earthenware plate, which she had been engaged in wiping when so suddenly transported to the land of Oz. Uncle Henry, when the summons came, had been out in the barn doing chores. He wore a ragged and much-soiled straw hat, a checked shirt without any collar, and blue overalls tucked into the tops of his old cowhide boots. "'By gum!' gasped Uncle Henry, looking around as if bewildered. "'Well, ah, swan!' gurgled Aunt Em in a hoarse, frightened voice. Then her eyes fell upon Dorothy, and she said, "'D-d-d-don't that look like our little girl, our Dorothy Henry?' "'Hi, the look out, Em!' exclaimed the old man, as Aunt Em advanced a step. Take care of the wild beasties, or you're a goner. But now Dorothy sprang forward and embraced and kissed her aunt and uncle affectionately, afterward taking their hands in her own. Don't be afraid, she said to them. You are now in the land of Oz, where you are to live always and be comfortable and happy. You'll never have to worry over anything again, because there won't be anything to worry about. "'and you owe it all to the kindness of my friend, Princess Ozma. "'Here she led them before the throne, and continued, "'Your Highness, this is Uncle Henry, and this is Aunt Em. "'They want to thank you for bringing them here from Kansas.' "'Aunt Em tried to slick her hair, "'and she hid the dish-towel and dish under her apron "'while she bowed to the lovely Ozma. "'Uncle Henry took off his straw hat, and held it awkwardly in his hands. But the ruler of Oz rose and came from her throne to greet her newly arrived guests, and she smiled as sweetly upon them as if they had been a king and a queen. "'You are very welcome here, where I have brought you for Princess Dorothy's sake,' she said graciously, "'and I hope you will be quite happy in your new home.' Then she turned to her courtiers, who were silently and gravely regarding the scene, and added, I present to my people our Princess Dorothy's beloved Uncle Henry and Aunt Em, 
who will hereafter be subjects of our kingdom. It will please me to have you show them every kindness and honor in your power, and to join me in making them happy and contented. Hearing this, all those assembled bowed low and respectfully to the old farmer and his wife, who bobbed their own heads in return. And now, said Ozma to them, Dorothy will show you the rooms prepared for you. I hope you will like them, and shall expect you to join me at luncheon. So Dorothy led her relatives away, and as soon as they were out of the throne room and alone in the corridor, Aunt Em squeezed Dorothy's hand and said, Child, child, how in the world did we ever get here so quick? And is it all real? And are we to stay here, as she says? And what does it all mean, anyhow? Dorothy laughed. Why didn't you tell us what you were going to do? inquired Uncle Henry reproachfully. If I'd known about it, I'd have put on my Sunday clothes. I'll explain everything as soon as we get to your rooms, promised Dorothy. You're in great luck, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. And so am I, and oh, I'm so happy to have you here at last. As he walked by the little girl's side, Uncle Henry stroked his whiskers thoughtfully. "'Pears to me, Dorothy, we won't make bang-up fairies,' he remarked. "'And my back hair looks like a fright,' wailed Aunt Em. "'Never mind,' returned the little girl reassuringly. "'You won't have anything to do now but to look pretty, Aunt Em. "'And Uncle Henry won't have to work till his back aches, that's certain.' "'Sure?' they asked, wonderingly, and in the same breath. "'Course I'm sure,' said Dorothy. You're in Fairyland of Oz now, and what's more, you belong to it. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 How Goff Visited the Whimsies The new general of the Nome King's army knew perfectly well that to fail in his plans meant death for him, yet he was not at all anxious or worried. He hated everyone who was good and longed to make all who were happy unhappy. Therefore he had accepted this dangerous position as general quite willingly, feeling sure in his evil mind that he would be able to do a lot of mischief and finally conquer the land of Oz. Yet Guff determined to be careful and to lay his plans well so as not to fail. He argued that only careless people fail in what they attempt to do. The mountains underneath which the Nome King's extensive caverns were located lay grouped just north of the land of Ev, which lay directly across the deadly desert to the east of the land of Oz. As the mountains were also on the edge of the desert, the Nome King found that he had only to tunnel underneath the desert to reach Ozma's dominions. He did not wish his armies to appear above ground in the country of the Winkies, which was the part of the land of Oz nearest to King Roquat's own country, as then the people would give the alarm and enable Ozma to fortify the Emerald City and assemble an army. He wanted to take all the Oz people by surprise, so he decided to run the tunnel clear through to the Emerald City where he and his hosts would break through the ground without warning and conquer the people before they had time to defend themselves. 
Roquat the Red began work at once upon his tunnel, setting a thousand miners at the task and building it high and broad enough for his armies to march through it with ease. The gnomes were used to making tunnels, as all the kingdom in which they lived was underground, so they made rapid progress. While this work was going on, General Guff started out alone to visit the chief of the Whimsies. These Whimsies were curious people who lived in a retired country of their own. They had large, strong bodies, but heads so small that they were no bigger than doorknobs. Of course, such tiny heads could not contain any great amount of brains, and the Whimsies were so ashamed of their personal appearance and lack of common sense that they wore big heads made of pasteboard which they fastened over their own little heads. On these pasteboard heads they sewed sheep's wool for hair, and the wool was colored many tints, pink, green, and lavender being the favorite colors. The faces of these false heads were painted in many ridiculous ways according to the whims of the owners, and these big burly creatures looked so whimsical and absurd in their queer masks that they were called whimsies. They foolishly imagined that no one would suspect the little heads that were inside the imitation ones, not knowing that it is folly to try to appear otherwise than as nature has made us. The chief of the whimsies had as little wisdom as the others, and had been chosen chief merely because none among them was any wiser or more capable of ruling. The whimsies were evil spirits and could not be killed. They were hated and feared by everyone and were known as terrible fighters because they were so strong and muscular and had not sense enough to know when they were defeated. General Guff thought the Whimsies would be a great help to the gnomes in the conquest of Oz, for under his leadership they could be induced to fight as long as they could stand up. So he traveled to their country and asked to see the chief who lived in a house that had a picture of his grotesque false head painted over the doorway. The chief's false head had blue hair, a turned-up nose, and a mouth that stretched half across the face. Big green eyes had been painted upon it, but in the center of the chin were two small holes made in the pasteboard, so that the chief could see through them with his own tiny eyes, for when the big head was fastened upon his shoulders, the eyes in his own natural head were on a level with the false chin. Said General Guff to the chief of the Whimsies, We gnomes are going to conquer the land of Oz and capture our king's magic belt, which the Oz people stole from him. Then we are going to plunder and destroy the whole country, and we want the Whimsies to help us. Will there be any fighting? asked the chief. Plenty, replied Guff. That must have pleased the chief, for he got up and danced around the room three times. Then he seated himself again, adjusted his false head, and said, We have no quarrel with Ozma of Oz. But you Whimsies love to fight, and here is a splendid chance to do so, urged Guff. Wait till I sing a song, said the chief. Then he lay back in his chair and sang a foolish song that did not seem to the general to mean anything, although he listened carefully. When he had finished, the chief Whimsy looked at him through the holes in his chin and asked, What reward will you give us if we help you? 
The general was prepared for this question, for he had been thinking the matter over on his journey. People often do a good deed without hope of reward, but for an evil deed they always demand payment. When we get our magic belt, he made reply, our king, Roquat the Red, will use its power to give every whimsy a natural head as big and fine as the false head he now wears. Then you will no longer be ashamed because your big strong bodies have such teensy-weensy heads. Oh, will you do that? asked the chief eagerly. We surely will, promised the general. I'll talk to my people, said the chief. So he called a meeting of all the whimsies and told them of the offer made by the gnomes. The creatures were delighted with the bargain, and at once agreed to fight for the gnome king and help him to conquer Oz. One whimsy alone seemed to have a glimmer of sense, for he asked, Suppose we fail to capture the magic belt? What will happen then? And what good will all our fighting do? But they threw him into the river for asking foolish questions, and laughed when the water ruined his pasteboard head before he could swim out again. So the compact was made, and General Guff was delighted with his success in gaining such powerful allies. But there were other people, too, just as important as the Whimsies, whom the clever old gnome had determined to win to his side. End of Chapter 6